We have a really fascinating guest today, and that's Chief Josh Brueger from the Pasadena, not California, from the Pasadena, Texas Police Department. Chief, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Chief, you know, everybody thinks Texas is all, you know, sheriffs with mustaches and law and order, and there's no, you know, crime and, and all that. And, and, and yet you uh, dealt with an issue that we, everybody else kind of associates with New York City. And that's the terrible reality of how dangerous bail reform is. Can you talk about that, Chief? Yeah, so I, I took office as chief in January of 2019. And really my first introduction to bail, I always tell people, I, I've been a chief about 11 days and I have a line of officers outside my door and they were upset about something. And long story short is they had arrested the night before um, a suspect for aggravated robbery. He had held up a series of uh, drug stores at gunpoint. Um, and then we caught him leaving the scene of the last one. And as he was running, he turned and pointed a gun at one of the officers who hit him with a car. And so he gets arrested for four counts of aggravated robbery, one count of aggravated assault on a police officer, and he got a PR bond. And so really, tell people what a PR bond is, because this is a really dangerous, violent guy, yeah. right? Yes. So it's personal recognizance bond. Essentially, it's your verbal promise that you're going to come back to court when you're supposed to be there. And you sign saying you're going to come back and you're released without any surety, anything, and basically let out the back door of the jail. You know, so I mean, the fact that the fact that you've committed multiple robberies, you've attacked police officers, all that. I mean, why wouldn't you follow the law and show up in court, right, Chief? Right. I mean, what do you have to lose at that point? So that, that really was my first introduction. And I always tell people that because I was really naive about this whole bail reform and how it was going to impact me. Um, and, and so if here I am a police chief that's really ignorant at the time, to be honest with you, about really how this was going to impact me. Um, I, I just imagine with the rest of the public, you know, they have no idea what's going on right underneath their noses. So you, so this dangerous, violent felon gets out on his own signature and you guys just sort of have to hope he doesn't reoffend, right? But that's not what happened. Right. And on this particular case, um, the FBI saw the story, the FBI ended up picking it up, but then fast forward about six months later, and that really was my second introduction to bail reform and the negative impact it can have. And that was, um, it was a Saturday evening. I remember very distinctly where I was at and I got a phone call from our violent crimes investigators and um, they were telling me, chief, you're not going to believe this. And I said, try me. So they, they had told me um, just a couple days earlier, we had arrested um, a guy who had assaulted his wife. So he was arrested for family violence. He had also killed the family cat. Um, and that was part of the investigation that they might, they were considering taking charges later, but they wanted a little bit more investigation done on that. But regardless, he was arrested for uh, assaulting his, his wife, who was pregnant at the time. Um, and he was already out on two PR bonds at the time. One, uh, his second DWI offense and uh, leaving the scene of a, of a crash. So here he is out on two PR bonds. We arrest him about six weeks after that for an assault family member on his wife. Um, he turns around and gets another PR bond. Um, and then about 18 hours later, returned to the apartment and killed his wife. And um, she was four months pregnant and um, killed their unborn child. So um, that was really my introduction to, you know, this revolving door of PR bonds and how dangerous it can be. When we talk about domestic violence, what you just described is the situation that we all fear. 
that we have a violent offender that we arrest and we are forced to let them out on bond. Because what people need to understand, the police don't set the bond. That's the court that does that. And it, it, you know, our whole goal with domestic violence is to keep that offender away from the spouse. And, and as we all know, the, the most dangerous time for that victim, and in this case, a young pregnant woman, the most dangerous time for her is right when he gets out of jail. He's angry, he, and there's a real good chance he's gonna reoffend. And that's exactly what happened in her, her horrible, sad case, right, Chief? Absolutely. You know, and, and to me, the, the, the system truly failed this family in this case. And that's, that's the unfortunate part. And, and, you know, the officers that go out there every day trying to do the right thing and, and trying to protect the victim, trying to, you know, make the arrest, all those things that, that we do, you know, to protect a victim and then to turn around and, you know, the system to fail um, and have this tragic, horrible outcome. I mean, it's just it's sad. So this young woman gets murdered by her domestic partner. And, and I, I can't even imagine, I got to just talk about your officers and your detectives for a minute. They must've been just devastated. Is that right? They were because they had just been out there, you know, and I, I say we're a big agency, but we're also small enough that everybody really knows everything that's going on. And so, you know, just to think, you know, officers again, you know, just, it was about two days earlier had been out there, had talked to her and, you know, all of those things. And, and again, we do all the things that we can to protect her. And it just, it does have an impact on the officers, you know, it has an emotional impact. Um, you know, it makes them angry, um, you know, and, and just the human side of things is, you know, officers, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, why do we want to do the right thing if the system's going to fail on the back end? And that, that's, that's a challenge to me, you know, as a leader in law enforcement right now is with everything that's going on in the world around us to continue to, you know, encourage, you know, the good men and women out there in law enforcement to continue to go out there and, and do the job. And that's, that's the tough part right now. So after this occurred, and, and now you've got a homicide on your hands and, and you're, you know, everybody's busy with that. You, one of the things that you have to do is deal with that young woman's family. And you, you got to know her mom. Is that right? That's right. And her mom has, um, she's been a huge ally and she's really, you know, trying to push forward some legislation to, to bring people's attention to what's going on. And, you know, in the, in the days and months, you know, following this, I, I'm out in the community a lot, speak at a lot of community events. And, and th these two cases that I've talked about here, they garner quite a bit of media attention. And so when I would be out speaking, I can't tell you how many times people, you know, citizens would say, well, what do we do about these judges? Um, and the diplomatic part of me, you know, is like, y'all elected them. You know, it's a, the, the people don't even really understand the process that, you know, they just elected these folks. And it's like, well, what do we do about it? I said, we got to show up and vote, you know, but that that's, I say that to say that I think there's a lot of confusion, you know, with the criminal justice system. People really don't understand what's going on. I say the general public um, and are just naive to it until they're, you know, impacted by it. And so, Caitlin's mom, um, you know, is really pushing um, a law, Caitlin's law right now to try to shore up some of these, these gaps that's happening with bail reform. And, you know, the one thing I always tell people is I'm not necessarily against PR bombs in limited situations, but to me, if you've already got one, you don't get another one. Um, violent crime is another one. I, you know, I, I'm, I don't think we should be giving PR bonds uh, for violent crime. Um, 
You know, I think, think the thing we lose with the PR bonds is the accountability, right? That if somebody comes down and posts your bond, that in addition to being accountable to the court and to the, to the bail bondsman, you're also going to be accountable to that person who posted your bail. And so I think we're losing some of those layers of accountability with, with this bail reform. So explain that to people that, that because I, I don't know that people necessarily understand when you, when, so when the police put somebody in jail, a, a, a bail is mm -hmm. set and it's a certain amount of money that someone has to put up, whether it's a family member, a relative, a bail bondsman. Um, and then that money is held not by the police, it's held by the courts until that person returns to court and does everything that they're supposed to do. So explain how that personal recognizance bond changes that $100,000 bail, $50,000 bail. I mean, it's, what's said is said, but how does that get changed? Because, yeah, I mean, they literally are just let out on their signature and their word that they're going to return. And, you know, some of these people, some of these offenses, you know, I, I question whether they're going to return, especially they've already gotten PR bonds. And so um, that to me is where we've got to get that accountability back in the system because we're missing it right now. You know, and the thing that I was talking to somebody not long ago, and we were talking about, you know, an 18 year old kid that gets arrested for a very small amount of, of marijuana. Um, it, you know, when mom and dad go down there and they sign that bail, you know, or sign that, you know, with the bail bondsman and they, they put up the, you know, 50, hundred bucks and the, the bail bondsman puts up the rest of it. You still have that accountability that they now have to answer to their parents. And, you know, when their parents have put that money up in this situation, I just given you mom and dad are going to make sure that, you know, the 18 year old kid gets to court. Um, whereas if the kid's just signing and walking out the door, again, I think you're losing a layer of, you know, just that accountability from friends, family members, whoever is, is helping. And so I think you're less accountable in that situation. After, uh, her murder, were your, uh, officers and your investigators able to, uh, successfully investigate that crime? They were um, in the, the tragic part of it is he actually called 911 after he killed her um, and told the 911 operator that he had killed her. And so the responding officers got there and he came out of the apartment, was covered in blood. And um, he made some statements, you know, to the effect that if because obviously they were having marital problems that, you know, if he couldn't raise the child that nobody was going to. And like I said, he had stabbed her over 20 times. So it was a, a violent, uh, brutal murder. Um, but he was charged with, with capital murder and he's still sitting in jail, um, waiting disposition on that. And, you know, the ironic thing in this bail reform here in Harris County is relatively new. And so there's a lot of stat keeping and a lot of data collection that's going on. So the, the I guess the interesting thing, if you will, is, so he's charged with capital murder and he was held on no bond on that. They reinstated his PR bonds on the assault family member, the DWI, and the uh, fail to stop and give information. So I can't help but think that that's to make it look like there isn't, you know, bond forfeitures on those cases. So it, it's, I think there's some, you know, you have to be careful with stats and with data. And that's, that's the one thing that I've realized in all of this is um, you can play games with numbers. And so you really have to, you know, dive into the numbers when people are telling you that, you know, it's been a success or it's been, a, you know, a failure. Either way, I, you know, you really got to look at the numbers and, and figure out what's going on with them. I would imagine that your citizens were outraged by the situation. Is that true? Yeah, they were. And, you know, I think that's the interesting thing about this is, unfortunately, 
live in a very political country right now, very divided. Um, you know, I, I always, it's very binary, you know, you're either here or here and there is nobody in the middle. And the one thing I found when I was out in the community, you know, in the days and months after this is there was, I, I would say an overwhelming outrage in our community. Um, didn't matter if they're rich, poor, white, black, Hispanic. Um, it was a cross section of folks that, that were appalled, offended at what had happened. You know, and I was, we have a very active uh, department social media page and, and our Facebook page. And we had posted about the story right after it happened. And the ironic thing um, is we had people that got on there and self-identified as I've been in prison before, I've been in jail before, and this is crazy that these people are getting PR bonds. I never got that. And so you have people that have been through the system that, you know, even were offended that this was going on. So again, I think that's the unique thing is everybody wants to be safe. You know, again, no matter where you're at in the, you know, in the socioeconomic scale, whatever ratio are, people want to be safe. Well, and quite frankly, the people who are in the, the poorest of the poor communities, they tend to be the most vulnerable to the criminals. And, and that's why now, you know, we've been hearing the, you know, at first we heard the uh, abolish the police movement, you know, immediately post George Floyd in Minneapolis. That has kind of transitioned now into the defund the police movement. And yet the Rasmussen uh, polling organization just came out with a poll that said, 66% of adults in this country, voters, absolutely oppose reducing the funding of any of their police departments. That's up 59% from that, the same poll they did in June. People are starting to realize that defunding the police is not such a great idea. What are you seeing and hearing in your community, Chief? So we have a very supportive community, but we have neighboring agencies that aren't so lucky. And, you know, like you just said, I think that the thing to me that's most sad about all this is the communities that are going to suffer are those ones that need us the most. And the ones that already, you know, oftentimes the minority communities, um, the impoverished, you know, parts of the community, um, you know, that the defund talk, those are the ones that are going to end up suffering. And so those communities that are already having, you know, oftentimes crime problems and, and other problems that they're only going to get worse through defunding. They're not going to get better. And, and so that that's the unfortunate part. As somebody told me the other day, they said, you know, the affluent, you know, suburban communities, if they defund the police, they've got the money, you know, to private security, those types of things where, you know, the inner city often doesn't have that. And so again, they're just going to be victimized even more. And that that's, that's what scares me. Well, and I think like, for a department like yours, very similar to the department I worked on, uh, I'm guessing you have a lot of community policing programs, officers in the schools. You, I mean, you get out there with your community, even you and you're the chief. If your budget was slashed, what would happen to those community policing programs, chief? Something's got to give. And that's where you got to make, you know, you got to start making tough decisions. And you know, people are still going to want you to respond when they call. Um, and so that's where, I, you know, I, I would think as a chief, that's where you're going to have to put, put all your manpower. And so all those, those extra assignments that you have, those community engagement, um, that, that to me is where the cuts are going to happen. And, you know, I think if you look all the way back even to Ferguson, you know, the one thing I always tell, you know, my folks is we've got to have that built up good collateral with our community before an event happens. Because if you don't, I mean, I, I think if you look at Ferguson, you see, see what happened there. 
And, and so I always tell folks, it's kind of like a bank account. Well, you know, we always have to make deposits into that account. Um, you know, the, those positive interactions with the community, because here's the reality, you know, we have 300 cops, 300 individuals, it doesn't matter how well we train all those things at some point, hopefully it's not anytime soon, but at some point there's a chance that one of, you know, one of the men or women here could make a poor decision. And so when that happens, you've got to have that credibility with your community so they can look at your agency and say, okay, well, that may have happened, but that's not who they are because, you know, of all these things in, in our history with our community. And so to me, that's important. And if we are cutting and slashing, you're going to lose those opportunities to build those relationships with your community. I, I recently took a look at uh, Austin's mm -hmm. police budget there in Austin, Texas. And, and, you know, they have their city council has done some uh, voting to slash their budget. And when I looked at the, the programs that are going to be cut, it's almost entirely community policing programs. And yet, when we hear that, that term, you know, police reform, or, you know, we also hear uh, reimagining the police, when we reimagine the police, we're talking about community policing, something that we've been doing in the United States since the 1970s, since I was a kid. And yet those programs are all going to go away if we don't have the funding for them. And that's what I really want people to understand. That's why the National Police Association, mm -hmm. we're out there with PSAs and social media trying to get people to understand what defunding the police really means. It's not positive for anybody. And, and Chief, we were talking before we went on the air about some of the larger cities, like for example, Minneapolis. You know, their chief recently had to tell the members of the community and the businesses who are asking for help in some of these just decimated neighborhoods, the chief basically has to say, you know what? We just can't, we don't have the resources to help you. How, as a police leader, how heartbreaking would it be for you to have to tell your community something like that? I could only imagine because, you know, I think back to when I started and, you know, most men and women when they started, it's to make a difference in the community. And, when you don't have the resources, you can't make that difference. And, and so to see people that are in need, are hurting, you know, and, and want help, and you just can't do it because you don't have the resources anymore. Um, and I always tell people, you know, decisions have consequences, good and bad. And, and so, you know, when people are making these decisions, um, you know, especially reform, that's one of the things that I've been, you know, I've, I've been preaching is we need thoughtful decisions. We need to look at, you know, long-term what's going to happen if we, you know, if we make this decision, because right now, unfortunately, I say a lot of communities um, making decisions really in the heat of the moment to try to, you know, appease people, jump up and down, hey, look what we did, but they're not looking at the long-term implications of their decisions. And, you know, I've, unfortunately, they're starting to come to fruition already. You know, um, it's only been a couple months since George Floyd and look at you know, what's happened in Minneapolis in just that short amount of time. So, I mean, I hate to think, you know, six more months, a year from now, what that's going to look like if they stay on the same course. Chief, how do you think police leaders around the nation can help hold the line on the defunding the police movement? What do we need to hear from, from our police leaders? So I think this is education. I think this is getting people out there. You know, and I think one of our fights right now is, you know, the, the, the media narrative that's out there, to be honest with you, is that that's a hard, it's a hard sell. I mean, we, you know, this murder case I, I talked about here a minute ago, 
you know, it didn't get a lot of media attention. I figured that, you know, more people because they would be outraged would get that attention. And so um, it is our job to get out there and, and to educate people so that they understand, you know, the consequences of their decisions. And, and you know, and, and gosh, that seems sad, right? Everybody loves to replay a salacious five second video of an officer involved shooting, but they don't want to hear about the murder of a young a pregnant woman murdered by her her own partner right. and, and and the loss that her mom um, is experiencing is just unthinkable but people you know there's again there's that reform the police movement that wants to paint us all as bad as people who get up every morning and want to hunt down people of color and engage them in a in a deadly force confrontation and that's just not the case what is it that you guys are doing in Pasadena? How are you getting that community support? Because clearly you have it. You know, that, that's it's really preaching to the line officers. You know, I, and right now, I, I think the natural tendency for officers in, in a climate like this, even in a city like ours where we're supported by the police, is to turn inward, um, kind of circle the wagons inward. And that, that's really been my push is at a time like this, we cannot turn our back on our community. Um, they have supported us through thick and thin, um, good and bad, and we owe it to them to continue to give them the service that they deserve. And, and it's building those relationships, as I say, you know, one contact at a time. Um, you know, I'm big on explaining reasons for stops, you know, traffic stops. It's most people's interaction with the police and, and taking it um, take to that next level, explaining it to people, um, you know, allowing people to be heard. All of those things that, that are really important for people to view your department as legitimate. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of community-based programs. And, and so, again, any opportunity we can um, to interact with, with our community outside of a law enforcement role, um, it, it just builds that relationship. And, you know, I'm pretty proud of what we have here. You should be. And, and Chief, we need... We need people to understand that, yes, there's lots of talk about reforming the justice system as well. And yet your community, unfortunately, has seen the most tragic result of uh, one of those reforms, and that's bail reform. Chief Brueger, we, we cannot thank you enough for spending time with us and helping to explain why defunding the police is a bad idea for law enforcement and it's a bad idea for the American public. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association and our initiatives, go to nationalpolice.org.